Welcome to the Happiness Podcast, brought to you by me, Mark Price, and my platform, Engaging Works, designed to help you be happier at work. Having been the boss of Waitrose for many years and working within the John Lewis Partnership, I became interested in the way that we work. How being happy at work can not only transform an individual's life, but how it can also transform an organisation. So my mission is to get the world a little bit happier at work. In doing so, I've created a happiness survey which measures and then compares to others how happy you are at work. It's free to take and you can find out about it at engaging.works. In the Happiness Podcast, I'll be speaking with people from all walks of life about how they work and their happiness at work. From people who have had career changes to entrepreneurs who have forged their own career paths. It's all about happiness and how we recognise this happiness at work and all get a little bit happier. Hi, I'm William Sitwell. I'm a food writer, broadcaster, and uh, I am the restaurant critic for the Daily Telegraph. Morning, William. Now, William, you're going to take the Engaging Works Workplace Happiness Survey. Do you feel appropriately rewarded for your work? Uh... <laughs> you have to score it, 0 to 10. 10 being you feel remarkably well rewarded. Yeah, well, the thing is, because I'm now sort of freelance, it's sort of quite complicated because my work is so disparate in different places. But, I mean, for example, for my work for the Telegraph, I feel very well rewarded. So right. if you put, I'll put a 10 on that one. Okay. Right? I mean, I don't feel that anyone is sort of hamstringing me and taking me for a ride. Okay. Do I feel recognised when I do something well? Yeah, I think absolutely. Ten. Um, Very good. The next question. Do you have enough information to do your job well? Yeah, absolutely. There's too much information out there. Plenty of information. Partly because I write, so I'm always grabbing bits of information from different places. Um, do you feel information is openly shared with your work? Well, the thing is, because I work on my own now for myself or in different groups of people, that's quite a kind of hard one. Well, let's think about it in the context of when you were the editor of Waitrose okay. Food Illustrated. Biggest okay, fine. circulation yeah. magazine in the United Kingdom. Yeah, yeah. In the context of that, how would you answer the question? Yeah, we constantly shared information. Unless we didn't want to share information with someone, <laughs> so I'll put a six. Okay. Because <laughs> you don't want to tell everyone everything you're doing, do you? Or do you? Well, so what's the downside of not telling people what's going on in the world of work around them? Well, sometimes, you know, you might be doing a little secret project which you don't want people to know about, which may be in their long-term interest. So let's say uh, a piece of business is coming up for pitch. Now, what you don't want to do is rattle everyone by telling them that this is this thing which is potential, uh, there's a downside to it, it could be doom and gloom is impending. So I think that you can squirrel off as a, as a team and maybe try and do something about it, negotiate with a client to try and retain the business without unnerving everybody. Because if you told them, listen, we're really worried, we think this contract's up for pitch, it, it won't affect them in the short term, and you want them to carry on doing their job as well as possible. What you don't want them doing is worrying and panicking. And you can overshare, you might have worries, and if you tell your team you're worried about something, you may be sharing that information, but I don't think it's necessarily an interest. So you would say that you had a paternal approach to how you manage I think more paternal people. than Machiavellian. Yeah. I don't think I'm a huge schemer. But I mean, I do, I've always enjoyed office life. And, and that does involve a bit of sort of schmoozing and walking around the place. And, you know, when I, you know, I worked at John Brown for almost 20 years, one of the world's global 
leading global content agencies who worked with Waitrose for two decades, and I, I did. And I made it my business to walk the building, you know, go and see people. I made it my business to speak to the people who ran the kind of utilities side of things, the post guy, the guys in HR. I think it's really important to do that. A lot of people just sit at their desk and do their thing, come into work and get leave. So I kind of, I mooched about the building, making mischief, but with good intent. I often think, and I think I've probably done this in the past, is one's often more honest about work, things in life with your colleagues and at home. Because sometimes, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I've been married for the second time, and I think that one of the things one learns is, you know, open honesty, sharing. You know, my, my wife, Emily, has a real genuine interest in my everyday life and work and really wants to know about what I'm doing at work. And I didn't tend to share that as much on my first marriage. And because I sort of, you know, sometimes think, oh, God, well, you wouldn't understand the relationships and the, and the complications. All that. And I really cannot be bothered to explain the whole of, you know, a kind of internal debate and a wrangle that I may have had with my boss and various people. I think that I've, in recent years, learned to be more open, honest and sharing on the, the home front. Because often I think it's easier to share with colleagues in a way, this sort of different environment. You're probably sort of touching a nerve here, which is why I'm slightly anxious about answering this question. I think sometimes people do find it maybe easier to express themselves at, in, and I think I have traditionally, uh, at work. Um, because, you know, you get to know people at work very well. Mm. You're seeing them day in, day out. Mm. And how do you feel about that phrase, information is power? Well, I think it's, it's, obviously, it's obviously very important and it's why people try and sometimes do have it. There are some people in the work environment who have a tendency to keep information close to their chest because they believe that that's what in, that gives them more power mm. to have that information. I think the more that you can explain to people what's going on, the better. Mm. But I think that there's always a feeling in most offices that the people at board level know something that you don't know. Mm. Um, and I think even if they do share, I think it's the human instinct to gossip and to talk about your managers. Mm. And I think as a manager, someone who's been a manager, you have to realise that, which is why the higher you get up in an organisation, the less you can be involved in that gossip. And actually you then have to realise that actually they're going to be gossiping about you, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you can be a good, honest person and share as much as you can, it's got to be good. And so having talked about information and whether you had enough and whether you think there are benefits in sharing, we now get on to questions about empowerment. Do you feel empowered to make decisions? Well, yes, absolutely. I'll put nine on that one. Um, the next question is, do you feel trusted to make decisions? I think certainly uh, now I do, and I think in my old job, I think certainly. Um, I think I did like to make decisions. Um, I think the bravest things you can do is to, is to change your mind and explain why. Mm. So if the question is, do you trust, feel trusted to make decisions? I'm going to go, yes, absolutely, and do a nine. But, but I don't there, worry about changing my mind. But has there ever been a time in your career when you haven't felt trusted by somebody to make decisions? Yeah, constantly. I think through my whole of my 20s <laughs> and 30s. And how did that feel? <laughs> I think... There's been moments in my life when I've been very happy to let anyone else <laughs> make decisions. <laughs> you know, I've been a sort of paid salary man for many years. And I think sometimes you quite like the fact that, you know, you just come in and do your job and go home. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I've always had other stuff going on in my life. But um, certainly, you know, when I was starting out on 
you know, working in newspapers. Mm. I was quite happy to be a features writer and be sent off to do jobs without having to worry about... It wasn't my job to worry about newspaper circulation. It was my job to worry about getting a story. And how do you feel if your copy was substantially tweaked by your editor? Well, I think you might be annoyed at the time, but um, as long as that editor was a good journalist, you would learn from that. Mm. So your copy being tweaked is, if you, if you pay attention, is a lesson on how to write the piece better the next time. Mm. And I think when you've been bashing out words for 20, 25 years as I have, when you get to a point where you write a piece and it goes in the paper in exactly the way you wrote it, it's a, it's a moment of massive pride. <laughs> it's either that or newspapers have no subs. <laughs> so that it, may be a, it may be a judgment about the lack of resources yeah. in publications these days. It, and sometimes you do file a piece and it goes straight online and, and with all the grammatical errors that you put in in the first place. But then, of course, now, or, or more recently with Waitrose, editor for 20 years, you were in a position where you were doing that to other people. So yeah. how did you think about that? How did you think about changing copy? How about managing their, uh, the trust that they uh, well, felt they got from you, their impact? I certainly know that with the junior members of the team, when they would file a piece, uh, I would think it would be really... I always wanted to show them why I was changing stuff. Now, because I worked on a monthly magazine, I think I had the luxury of time. When you work on a newspaper... You file a piece of copy, someone tweaks it, it goes in. Mm -hmm. And I don't think editors, features editors, have the time to go and sit with younger colleagues and explain exactly why they changed stuff. No. Because the, the, the cycle of, of, of publications is just too dramatic and fast. I always wanted to make a point with someone who was younger in the team to explain why I was tweaking the copy, why I was changing it, and sort of tutor them through it, even though it took a long, quite a long time, because then they would learn. If you are a young writer and you're filing copy and the piece gets rewritten from start to finish, it can be completely humiliating. So I, wanted, I thought it was really important not to humiliate, to appreciate that when they get the byline, they're going to feel pride, mm -hmm. but also to understand how and why the editing process happened. You know, how it is that you have to go in on the event you're writing about. Mm -hmm. So if you're, you know, and I always used to give the younger members of the team a very clear brief. Mm -hmm. You're going to go on this story. I want you to start the story with you in that place bit of colour, a quote, the landscape, the weather, the time of day. Then you reflect back on why it is you're there, what the story is. Mm. Then you hop back to the place. Then you run through the arguments that you're trying to cover with some quotes and colour. And then you kind of tie the whole thing up at the end by reflecting back on the place that you are and maybe mention something about the weather again. And I think most features are sort of have a nice, clear structure mm. like that. And I like to impart that sort of structure. And do you think that young people now going into journalism getting that kind of coaching and education, or is there just not time? Yes and no. Um, I think that some editors, features editors, find copy that comes in that's not good enough, it just irritates them. I think people do need to be tutored and looked after. Mm. And reflecting back to those school days, in those days, did, did you know the career you wanted to go into? No, I, don't, I, I didn't know for years. Sometimes I feel I still don't know what it is I want to do. I did like the idea of writing, and I think I did think that that's something that I could do. Mm. And I did find the process of it sort of satisfying. I was a pretty hopeless student. I was a very bad pupil. When I was at prep school, I was slippered and cane for being lazy. Mm. In fact, I was nervous at tea time for about 10 years after I left my prep school. And I remember thinking why it was, and it was because at about 20 past four every day I'd get caned because I was lazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
So I didn't really focus and work very hard, and I didn't know what I was doing. But you know the weird thing was, it never worried me. My parents used to get these appalling reports, and I used to sneak down and open the envelope, the brown envelope of my reports in very carefully, and read them quickly, and seal them up, so that my father, you know, before he kind of went through it, I kind of prepared my, <laughs> my ground. Mm. And I think my parents were surprised, and actually... Some of the reports reflected this, that, you know, they said that, you know, William is doing incredibly badly, but seems to show not one iota of worry about his plight. So, so were you happy at school? <laughs> I, was, I was happy staring into space mm. in the window. The sort of, there was a, my bedroom in a little cottage in Oxfordshire. I used to sort of sit on the windowsill, just staring outside and then playing by the stream and sort of tossing little stones and sitting by the compost heap. That's where I was happy. I don't think I particularly enjoyed school. And what about in a work context? Where have you been least happy at work and most happy? Place or jobs? Well, I've had sort of... When I was sort of trying to get... find out where I was going in the early days, I've had some sort of slightly strange jobs. I think that I... I was... I, some job agency sent me to the accounts department of some business once, and I realised that this was just utterly miserable. I was a minicab driver for a company based on Marble Arch. Actually, I quite enjoyed that. Why did you enjoy that and not accounts? <laughs> I, I have no head for figures. I can't, I still can't look at a spreadsheet and make head or tail of it. Mm. I'm numerically very, very challenged. I mean, I really have a problem. I was very unhappy trying to work out, do maths at school. I mean, I would sit there crying in my room, sort of smashing uh, lampshades, and I was utterly miserable trying to do maths. And, and it if, still if you, fills me with horror. And in the workplace... In the workplace, you know, I've always, I don't know, I, I don't really remember being unhappy at work. What's your next question? Do you have the resources you need to do your job? Well, yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, and when, when you were in a corporate role, did you feel that you had enough resource? Yes, I think so. I think at John Brown I was very well supported. Yeah. Okay, next question. Do you feel your views are heard at work? Certainly when I was at John Brown, I think absolutely. I had a very clear route to our chief executive, to our managing director, to our main account manager of the Waitrose business. Um, now, in the good ship WRSS Enterprises, which is my little business through which I run everything, um, occasionally my wife and our young child come into the, the study, present themselves. And uh, actually, you know, the wonderful thing is Emily, my wife, loves to read every piece that I write before I file it, mm. and makes a few tweets and gives me the thumbs up. And, uh, you know, so we discussed it, which is a rather lovely thing. So Very I good. feel my views are heard at work. Yes, absolutely. I've been good for that. The next question coming up is, do you feel the organisation cares for your well-being, psychologically, mentally, as well as um, physically? I think yes. I think... Uh, OK. So recently you were in the news, big headlines. Yeah about what's now called Vegan Gate, mm -hmm. uh, where a private email you sent to uh, a vegan activist was released. Um, and um, as a consequence of that, you stepped down after 20 years of uh, editing the Waitrose magazine. So in terms of your uh, stress and your well-being, uh, how, how did that feel? You said earlier that you were this kind of really relaxed individual that threw stones and didn't really worry about reports. How, how did that feel? Did you feel supported? Um, it's very strange because it was a sort of extraordinary whirlwind and it's very 
odd to find yourself in the center of what actually became a kind of global media storm. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people read about this news globally. The way that I operated in my office was we had a lot of fun. This is what we did day in, day out. Now, I did a lot of other things as well. But when I was in the office, it was a lively place. There was a lot of banter. However, you know, if that word is derogated, now I don't know. But we joked. We had fun. You know, if there was a dustbin, I'd try and see if we could get our art director into it. Mm-hmm. We had a, an amusing time in the office. Mm-hmm. And I was always taking the mickey out of people. And then one day, you got a pitch and then what from happens a vegan is writer. I made the mistake of the office banter around me happening on my phone to a stranger. So this girl pitches me on my Hotmail a series about plant-based meals, which sort of, you know, the reality is, really? I mean, do you not read the magazine? We do this stuff all the time. So I sort of corresponded with her and sent some flippant response to her. And I think actually the reality is she was quite annoyed that I shut down the, the conversation and went to sort of eat some cake or something. something. Some cake was needed to be tested in the kitchen or, I don't know, maybe there's a new dustbin I need to get the uh, our director of photography into. So she leaked the email trail to BuzzFeed. And actually it was during half term and I was sitting down in Somerset, just written my um, Christmas welcome editor's letter to the reader. I was about the would have been about the 15th one I'd done to them. Mm. And uh, my phone shimmered and it was someone from the Waitress Press Office saying, did you send that email to that journalist? And I went, what email to who? I completely forgot about it. Anyway, she sent the screen grab that BuzzFeed had got hold of. Mm. And I went, oh yeah, that looks familiar. And anyway, then I cut a long story short, all hell is broken loose. Um, waitress get inundated with complaints. Mm. There's a social media storm, and I quit. Partly diffuse the row. So the question is, how did I feel? Without sounding too sort of horribly flippant, it was quite exciting. It was stressful, but I was never worried. I was with my wife, my young child, actually my two teenage kids. Yeah, he was about ten days old. Mm. My two teenage kids were with me. So I felt loved and supported where I was. Mm. Because I'd just been rude and immature, I didn't really worry. Mm. This wasn't a case of abuse, Mm. anti-Semitism, sexism. You know, I'd been rude to a vegan. They're not a religious group. Some of them would like to think they are. Some Some of them would like to think they have sort of They should have a religious protected status, but they're not. So I just pissed off a bunch of vegans. Um, But there are consequences, as we then discovered. So I never felt alone. And also, I was very supported by my CEO. Mm. And when we had a kind of... Andrew Hirsch. Andrew Hirsch. And we had a very sort of crunch conversation. He'd woken up in Toronto on business. He'd switched on his phone. And on BBC Worldwide, he said, there's three stories today. There's Yemen, Pakistan, and you. And this was in Toronto at at 10 a.m. on the Tuesday morning. Mm. So I said, look, there's three things for me. One is waitress need to repair and move on with their reputation. Mm. John Brown mustn't be affected by this, and I don't want our friendship to be affected. Mm. So I resigned. So I felt supported by him, supported by my family. The media supported me. I was just hated by about 350 million vegans. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> but you moved on very quickly because you were offered roles, I know, with a number of newspapers. Yeah, I moved on quickly. I moved, I moved very quickly to... I wrote a long letter to Celine mm. saying I was deeply sorry and I hope she was okay. The person who the, the, pitched the my idea. My vegan tormentor, as yeah. the male on Sunday yeah. described her. And we met up and had a very fruitful conversation. Because as someone in the food world, I think it's very important, actually, that she and I can have a job of educating people. I think there's many virtues for eating less meat. And I think that if if we've promoted the story and created noise around it, you know, I I think there's belligerence on all sides. Mm. You know, I think think meat eaters can learn a thing or two about plant-based food. Mm. I think people who eat plant-based food can learn a thing or two about the importance of having some protein. Okay, so uh, it's good to know that you felt supported through that, and I'm not yes. surprised that your score is high. The next question is... Do you rarely feel depressed, anxious at work? Yes. Uh, I sometimes wake up and I go, my God, I'm not earning enough money. Uh, I'm really stressed about this deadline. I've got 80,000 words to write for my book. I struggle through the day. If I've got my head down and I've written and I've written and I've written by 6 o'clock, that anxiety and depression subsides. I think moody, anxious, yes, all the time. I think I seesaw constantly between, I mean, a therapist once told me that I was an adrenaline junkie. So I get excited about deadlines, I get a rush of blood, I write very, very fast, Mm. quite structured, so I can bash out 850 reasonable words without having to re-edit. So the stress, it's... The worry and anxiety work, yes, all the time. Okay, so I think you're going to so have to rarely. put yourself low. So rarely, you're going yes, to, you, you means often if you're low. Yeah, I'm going to put one on that. Yeah. Do you feel you do something worthwhile? Yes, very much. Okay. I really do. I'm going to put ten on that. Yeah. And which of the things you do do you enjoy most? Writing, podcast, cooking, because you've got all your wonderful supper well, clubs. I do my supper clubs. I mean, I, think I get chefs to come and cook at my supper club. So it's a different sort of supper club. Yeah. So in the countryside, I get famous chefs from London to come and cook. Mm. And the, 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 the London supper club is chefs from around Britain coming to London. Mm. So there's two, there's two ways I like to feed people. So I enjoy... So which is your favourite? I don't know. Cooking in you know, the supper I, clubs I or writing I, or... I, I like them all in different ways. Oh, okay. I, mean, I really do. I find it very satisfying when you've written a book and it lands on your doorstep. Yeah. And I love seeing a byline. I'm constantly excited by seeing a piece I've written in a paper. Mm. And I'm writing a lot more now. So I think probably my writing is what I find most, most worthwhile. Okay. Do you feel proud to work for your organisation? Well, as the director of WRS <laughs> yes. Enterprises, I feel very proud of that. And, and you, I was and immensely proud to work for John Brown. And I was yeah. immensely proud of my association with Waitrose. So you're ticking a 10. How likely are you to recommend your friends and family to work at your organisation? Well, if it was John Brown, I'd yeah. probably say eight. But if it was okay. WRSS Enterprises, I'd probably Even put it more. ten. Do you feel you're treated with respect? Yeah, I think so. I think Have you guy, always felt treated with respect? Uh, no, but when, quite right. When, when not? Well, I think when you were a kind of little uh, young learning scribbler. I mean, you're not looking for respect. I don't, you know, also respect's never been something I've really sort of worried about too much. Mm. I think you is, need to be decent an, to people. Is that an Eton thing? Well, we're always from your no, education. We were always taught at Eton to to not, you know, to to treat others with respect and to but be not aware of it back. Not, I think if you go around expecting respect, I just think it's a bit egotistical. 
Do you have a good relationship with your line manager? Well, I don't have one now. That's Emily, isn't it? Your yes, wife. Emily, yes, exactly. <laughs> well, it's Walter. Walter. Walter, my four-month-old son. He's yeah. my line manager. I have a very good relationship with but him. But you did in the past, didn't you? you yes, I got on see. very well with my, my old CEO, my managing director. Do you okay. enjoy your job? Massively so. I've put a 10 on that one. Wonderful. Do you feel you're being developed? Well, you know, I think I was. One of the reasons why I didn't worry too much about moving on was because all of the things that I was doing in my freelance life were the, were the areas that I was being stretched and yeah. most interested in. So I had a job as editor of this magazine for Waitrose and also launching supermarkets globally. But I had a whole other, you know, on the side. So Project William was kind of over, was moving into mm. my John Brown sphere. And do you think a lot of people are like that? They have a job that they do, but then there's all these other interesting I think, things. Well, I think some are. You know, it's interesting. I, over years, I started meeting people who were... I, I thought full-time with other organisations, and I realised they had little entrepreneurial pursuits going on at the side. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things I most respect Andrew Hirsch for is encouraging all of, allowing me to do all these other things. Because mm. I think it, he, he realised that, that my TV, radio, book, public speaking, all that work mm. was useful when pitching me as someone who could create a content programme for a, for a retail brand overseas. So I think it suited him to support me, but I think also instinctively he did. And what happened with you over what's called Vegan Gate now uh, propelled you into taking on all these things that were your sidelines as your main yes. role. So in a way, do you sort of feel pleased that you had that push, that the things that were bringing you great joy outside of your day job were are now your permanent job? Well, I was, I was thinking, you know, you can't really edit a food magazine for the same business for more than 20 years. There's only so much you can write about asparagus within a context every time it comes to April. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking that maybe 2019 is the kind of crunch year. But would I have had the guts, the nerve to, to leap out on my own? Probably not. So what would your so advice be to other people? Who what I would, well, things? people who come to me, and it's happened in the past, you say, look, I've got this real passion for this, but I'm doing this. There was a girl who was working for a, as a, an assistant in a dentist surgery. And she said, my passion is to make chocolate. And I said, well, the longer you work in a dentist surgery, the less likely you are to be able to, to um, mm. make chocolate. Mm. And she quit, and she has a brand of chocolate now called Amelia Rape, and she's been doing very well, which gives me a huge sense of pride, because I said, you've got to leave. You've got to do that. Mm. Also, you've got to leave as early as you can. Mm. Someone once told me, maybe it was you, about this idea of the pyramid of risk. And the sooner you make the risk, the less you've got to lose. Mm -hmm. If you leave it to the top of the pyramid, mm -hmm. you've got a lot, more to, a lot more to risk and less time. Mm -hmm. So I think if you've got a passion, you've got to go for it. Life's too short. Do you feel you're being developed massively now? <laughs> Do you feel happy at work? Do you know I, I've always felt happy at work? I mean, there are stresses, but I've always loved what I do. So I'm going to click a 10 on that. Great. What three changes would improve your workplace happiness? Now, we always ask people, what three things would they do to be happier at work? So, you've got to think quite quickly now. What three things would make you happier at work? Uh, I, I would, uh, more money. Okay. Type in, more money. <laughs> How much is enough? <laughs> Too much is never enough, as Barry White would say. <laughs> but what do you think? What, in terms of actual yeah, figures? Well, what's enough? Well, I, I would like to have enough money so that I can pay for the cost of my kids' education without having to wake up at 4 a.m. with a fear that I'm, and an anxiety that I'm not able to make it. Right. 
Okay. I think another million quid a year would make life a bit more okay. comfortable. Well, we've got a benchmark for what's going to make you happy in that context. Number two. What would improve your workplace happiness? Just money. Nothing. Everything else is fine. All right. So money, money, and money. So put money, money, money. That could be a song, I think. I would like to ask you which song, book, or film makes you happiest? Um, music. My music tastes are so sort of desperate, you know, I go from kind of liking a bit of grind to Mozart fairly rapidly. Um, so depending on how I feel, I'm slightly obsessed with a song I came across on Spotify the other day called Sailing by Christopher Cross, which is kind of very, it's a very clever song. Was it Arthur? No, well he wrote Arthur. Yeah. So this is his sort of either the single afterwards or the one before. Right. But it's a very clever song because it's sort of off-key and it builds you back into the chorus and it puts you off-key again. And it's a very innovative, clever song. And is that a metaphor for your life? <laughs> yeah, maybe. I'm constantly sort of battling against the chorus. If you had to nominate somebody to come on here and talk about their workplace happiness, who would you like to hear? Oh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, without a question, because he's an old friend of mine. We were at school together. He's had huge amounts of stress. He's gone from being very popular in the press to being a sort of massively assaulted by the mainstay of media like the Daily Mail that were championing him. Um, I think finding out about, you know, there's a collegiate atmosphere in the House of Commons that people don't know about. There's a support that's cross-party. And I remember the fact that he would say that you know, he had letters from people like Jack Straw after he made a speech. He was great friends with Ed Balls. And I think hearing from someone like Jacob, who's seen as a sort of extreme right winger, hearing about how actually the House of Commons is a more supportive place than the media makes out would be wonderful. So I'd love to find out about, I would love for him to do a workplace happiness survey. I think that'd be fascinating. I'll get him in for you. And which country do you live in? Yeah, right to the bottom right for the, the U. Bottom. So we do the survey all over the world. So we have okay. responses at the moment from 132 right. countries. I'm a white Caucasian. You are? That's 26 now, out of 26. Do I get a score? This is it. You, we are going to find out in about two seconds how happy you are at work. But having gone through all those questions, I suspect that you're right up there. So it takes about uh, five seconds normally for the score to come through. It's pulsing away. Maybe the, um, it'll crash. It's not possible to calculate my happiness. So, here we go. So my happiness rating out of 1,000 is 919. Which is incredibly high. That's not bad. So the global average is 654 today. It moves all the time. And within your industry, so obviously you said you were in media, uh, the total is 668, which on average is higher. And if we look through... We can see that in all categories of happiness, so reward, recognition, information sharing, empowerment, job satisfaction, pride in what you do, well-being, you score very highly, which reflects what you've been saying, that you've had a very happy time at work and you feel incredibly happy. But if you go down a bit more, I suspect, because of one of the answers you gave, we measure your well-being at work. Right. And uh, if you score lowly on this, what we do is we suggest you go and do another test. Right. 
And of course, so you I'm... remember you scored yourself one. Yes. <laughs> for feeling anxious and depressed and said you were yes. in a permanent state of anxiety and depression. So we probably would recommend, William, that um, you, you just tested yourself to make sure that um, everything is okay in that space. And you can do that with another short survey. But in terms of the other things, um, if you scroll down, uh, this measures your workplace satisfaction. As you'll see, you're very, very high on the chart because you're clearly very satisfied. Uh, you're an apostle for what you do. So no, you're, I like that, apostles and anarchists. Yeah, so um, you're very much an apostle for what you do, food writing, cooking. And then last of all, we have an index where, again, you score uh, incredibly high, highly on career development, as this was saying that you're doing more. So uh, if you sign in, you can have even more granular look, but I'm delighted to say, William Sitwell, you are happy at work. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening. And again, if you want to take control of your workplace happiness, go to engaging.works and take the free happiness survey. See you next time.